church girl. I'm a long-standing church girl. And I know that there was a collective sigh of disappointment when y'all heard that Roger Johnson was not going to be here. Because, like, you're like, I brought a friend. Listen, it doesn't matter if Roger's not here. It doesn't matter that I'm here. The only thing that matters is that the Lord is here. Because that's who your friends need. That's who you need. That's who our children need. So we're just going to take a moment. I know she's prayed, but I'm going to open us up in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, God, I love you. My prayer is that you would continue the work that you started this morning. Thank you, or this morning and this weekend, God, and thank you that you are faithful to do that. Your word tells us that you will do that. Father, I am asking for fresh fire to fall today, fresh awareness of who you are, that eyes would be opened, that ears would be opened, that hearts and minds would be opened, and that the Holy Spirit would manifest his presence in such a way that lives would be transformed forever in the name of Jesus. Who came to the week, who this weekend? Who came? Can we just tell everybody how amazing it was? It was. It was amazing. This morning, um, not many people knew that I was going to be coming back this morning, uh, but one little girl found out, and she's so sweet. She's got to be in her early 20s. She's not that old. And so she sat by me on the front row when she comes from Lonedale. Does that sound right? Did I say that right? Lonedale? Okay. Anyway, she was up here in the front row, and during worship, and I noticed, and when I got up to speak, I noticed that she had no shoes on, and she was just standing there barefoot, and I thought, she's got it right, because she spent the entire weekend with us, and I can tell you that this is holy ground. This is holy ground. The Lord showed up in a way that I have never seen, and I have done several, I've done several conferences. This was amazing. This was an amazing weekend. Our prayer is that God continues the work that he started here this morning, that the seeds that were sown will grow into a great harvest in Villa Ridge. Our prayer is that what God started here will not stop in Villa Ridge, but will go into Washington, that this house is a light on a hillside and more and more people will come to this place and come to discover the Lord. God is good. God is good. And he's going to continue to do a work this morning, even though I'm not Roger, I promise. By way of introduction, my name is Jane Patton, and I'm the founder of Altered Ministries, which is the sign that you see behind us. Altered was launched um, out of doing prison ministry. So on Mondays, I go to a prison called Vandalia. It's a Vandalia women's prison. Um, and I normally, just so you know, I normally very much stay in my lane. I do women's ministry events. It's very unusual for me to have men in the audience. I am honored and I am humbled that you are here. I will also tell you that this audience looks vastly different uh, than the, the people that I talk to in the prison. Everybody's wearing different colored clothing. That's exciting. I don't see any body alarms, and that's kind of fun. So if anybody comes at me, listen. I, don't, I got no hope. I just, he's just going to take me over. Normally I do have a body alarm on me, but I, there's no fear. I'm not afraid in prison at all. And the reason I'm not afraid in prison is because Jesus is there. People ask me all the time, Jane, do you prefer doing prison work or do you, prison ministry or do you prefer to do ministry in the church? Over and over and over again, I will tell you I prefer prison ministry. Um, the reason why is because Jesus is there. The scriptures are clear that when you minister in the prison, you are ministering to Jesus himself. I have seen Jesus in ways that I could never see in a church. When I come into a church, like when I go into a prison, it's, it's easier. It's just easier. Because when I walk into a prison, we're all on the same footing. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus. Praise God. It's fantastic. I walk into a church, you're like, I got it. I'm good. Nothing to see here. Keep moving. You got the mask right here. <laughs> it's hard. It's harder here. Because somehow we have desensitized ourselves to not letting anybody know that we really need a touch from Jesus. 
When I do a women's ministry event, we usually do it over a, a weekend like we did here. We do an altar conference. We do a Friday and a Saturday style event. And I bring in several different speakers because I believe that all, I, because I deal with women, we hear things differently from different people. You'll notice that in our message time today, I, I speak very quickly. I don't expect that to change this morning. Um, so just listen fast. But I have other speakers that are more methodical and they, and they talk slower or, or just differently. And, and God moves because he brings a lot of people. But I always take the Friday night. I always take the first message. <clears throat> and the reason why is because it's the hardest. And I'm not afraid of hard because Jesus shows up in hard. But when people come in from a Friday, they're coming in with the weight of the world that is on their shoulders. They're trying to decide if they like my hair, if they like what I have on, if what I'm going to say is going to line up with what they believe denominationally. I'm going to tell you, or theologically, I'm going to tell you, I'm in every church. I love being in every church. The only one I'm not in is in the Catholic church yet. Um, but it's just because they haven't discovered me. Anyway, <clears throat> that's my prayer. I believe that Jesus died for all sinners of every tribe, of every de denomination, of every nation. Jesus died for everybody. Jesus is for everybody. I love your pastor. I love your pastor, and I love the heartbeat of this church. I've been in enough churches to know that churches typically pick up the DNA of the pastor, the spiritual DNA of him. Your pastor is a man who loves God. You are a blessed church because Roger Johnson is your pastor. I promise you. <clears throat> Altered was formed... Because as my ministry partner and I, Jessica Smith, you guys heard her, she was the cute little redhead that had everybody crying. She, she and I would drive back and forth to the prison and we would see Jesus transforming women in the prison. And there's a funny joke, a kind of snide, critical comment that people make and they say, well, yeah, everybody gets religion in a prison. But yeah, because Jesus is there, again. That's why people get religion in prison. Because you, sometimes you've got to get to the end of yourself before you recognize that you need something way bigger than you to rescue you. But she and I would drive back and forth, and at the same time while we're doing prison ministry, we're also doing ministry in the churches. We're just in the churches. I was, doing, I was being sent out by the women's, mission, uh, women's ministry branch of the Missouri Baptist Convention, and I was doing women's events all over. But what I began to discover is that the women that we were ministering to in prison were walking with way more freedom than the women that I was ministering to in the pews sitting in the churches. Because we have a way of wearing masks and not getting the help that we need. And we're like, how in the world do we take the ministry that we're doing in the prison and bring it into the church? And Altered Ministries was found. And Altered Ministries is not a ministry. We're not expecting you to come follow us or like us. We want to, we, one of our foundational truths is that we stay low and we lift God high. And we partner with the local bodies, the local church bodies, because everybody needs to get a part. Everybody needs to find a church to belong to and to grow up in and to find accountability in. So we partner with churches and we bring the same message that we're taking into the prison that Jesus can transform you. No matter where you are, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, Jesus can transform you. Jesus loves you, that he has plans and purposes for your life that far exceed anything you've experienced to this point. We believe that God is more. The theme that we had this weekend for those that were here is deeper still. This is what I know, again, being raised the daughter of a Southern Baptist minister, or having been grown up in the church, this is what we do in the church. And if we're just being honest, I mean, I don't want to waste your time, so I'm going to be honest with you. We take God and we put him in this intellectual box, and we put him up on the shelf like we got God figured out. We got it. 
We got the top 10, right? We know kind of the Bible stories. We take the Bible studies. We're doing Beth Moore from big hair time to the time she is now, right? We've done it all. But the reality, I don't care how old you are. I don't care what you think you know of God. I don't care what church, what school, whatever seminary degree you think you have. There is more of God to be discovered. There is more of God to be experienced. There is more. And no matter where you are in the trajectory of your life, God is constantly calling us deeper still. Constantly calling us. And we talked about that this weekend. So as I was praying and preparing uh, to give a message, I was like, God, what, what would you want me to talk about? I, I just do women's ministry. What in the world would you have me to say to both my brothers and my sisters in Christ? And it was this, just preach the word because the word applies to all of us. Yeah. My God, you are good. What do you want me to talk about? And he drew my attention to the prodigal because that makes sense. Because I was a prodigal. I was a prodigal, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. When I'm in the prison, we ask for our offenders to rise while we speak the word of God. So I would like to ask everybody to stand. As we open up our message today, we're going to talk about the passage found in Luke 15, 11 through 32, where Jesus tell, was telling the parable of the lost son. I'm reading it out of the NLT. Luke 15, 11 through 32. To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild and reckless living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. In fact, this is what he's rehearsing. He's making a plan right here. And he says, I will go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both you and heaven, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father with this plan, and while he was still a little long way off, say, still a long way off, say it, say, long way off, his father saw him coming. He was filled with love and compassion, and he ran to his son, and he embraced him, and he kissed him, and his father said to him, Father, I have, he said, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. You may, have, you may be seated. Now, I do not think it is any stretch of the imagination to see ourselves having been or currently are a prodigal of any sort. I think it is very easy, I think it's very easy, in fact, to walk in prodigalness, if I'm allowed to create that word, in regard to God. I think often people run away from God, and for a myriad of reasons, but what I would tell you is that people, I, listen, <laughs> People are walking away from their idea of who they think God is. 
Because if you knew who God was and is, he would be the last person you would run away from. He is beyond loving, beyond forgiving. He is everything, everything. You find your purpose in him. Why in the world did you run away from him? Because you're running away from who you think he is. Who the devil has persuaded you that he is. In order for me to keep on a tight time frame, that's a joke. Listen, but nobody else is coming next, so, okay. We'll have dinner in a bit. Let me be as clear as possible in relaying the message that God has given to me. I have provided an outline for you in the form of slides for the remainder of our time together, and I think as we look at these, we'll be amazed at how much God loves us and is constantly calling all of us home from a season of prodigalness. To begin with, though, we're going to look at the very first thing that beckons us to step into a season of prodigalness. And the first thing we're going to look at is P, and it is pride. Pride permeates every bad decision we make, every bad one. It is in the case of, I know everything. I know everything, but it shows up in our story with an attitude of, I want everything now. I want it all. Verse 12, the younger son told his his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. As a side note, the thing that is completely shocking to me about this is that this young son was not asking for a loan. He was not asking for a gift from his father, from his grand estate. He was essentially looking at his dad and saying, give me everything now as if you were dead. You no longer exist to me. I have, we had a woman that came up and gave testimony. I think she was here earlier this morning. And she talked about that there have been seasons in her life where she has gone months without speaking to her child. In the prison, I can tell you, it has been years since sometimes the parent and the child have had any form of, form of communication. He looked at his dad and says, you are as good as dead to me. And yet his dad gave him the money, his state, his inheritance. As a 45-year-old rational-thinking woman, I can stand outside this story, and I can think how insane that is, how arrogant that is, what a defiant and hard heart that is. And yet, I can see myself here. I can. Because pride is universal. Pride, you may not look at pride like you're looking at a loved one saying, I wish you were as good as dead. But pride, pride will cause you to spend money you shouldn't have spent. Because I want to look like everybody else looks. Because I'm convinced if I had money like everybody else, then I would not be sitting on the outside of whatever social group I think I'm sitting outside of. Pride causes you to go to places you shouldn't go. Some of us have the spiritual pride in us that we think, I can handle being in this atmosphere. I can handle it until it trips you up. Some of us, pride causes us to spend hours on Netflix watching shows, binge watching, that we never should be watching. I can assure you, data in will come data out. You want to know why our culture thinks the way our culture thinks? It's because we are spending hours allowing the culture to tell us what we should think about every situation. And I can tell you the root of it is pride, keeping us deceived. We should have everything we ever wanted now and wait for nothing. It shows up when we assume authority we shouldn't have. 
We have to wait for God to call us up. It shows up when we hurt people that we shouldn't hurt. Thinking, I, I will hurt you before you even think of hurting me. I will hurt you. Pride. One author describes pride as something that exposes a lack of trust in God. It is an over-concern with ourselves, a disposition to exalt ourselves, to get above others, to hide our defects at all costs, to pass for more than what we are, and whether it is craving compliments, fearing our own image, or entertaining an overly critical view of ourselves, pride can be both glaringly obvious, like that person is so full of pride, and deceptively sneaky when it comes to ourselves. God's word assures us, friends, that pride is the root of the rubble that it is in our lives. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, I'm not talking about, and I said this in the first two services, I'm not talking about that bad things happen in your life and you're like, it wasn't rooted with pride. I feel you. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. I got it. But what I am telling you is that pride will take you outside of the Father's care and you will experience things you wish you had never experienced because you took yourself out of under his hedge of protection. Pride destroys Pride comes before a fall. And I left undealt with, pride will always lead to a rebellion, which is R. The verse is, a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. Another version says, a far country. And there he wasted all of his money in wild and reckless living. Now, rebellion, by definition, is any opposition to anyone in authority or dominance. This younger son, he was out. Like, I'm out. And he was out spiritually, relationally, emotionally. And when all that happened, because there's things that build up to other things. Do you feel me? There's things, not like all of a sudden we just leave. There have been disappointments and things that have brought us to a place where like, now I'm physically out. I am physically out. He was his own authority. He was in charge. If you, if you raise teenagers, you know exactly what I'm saying. He's going to talk about, sorry for all the teenagers, my bad, you guys are amazing. <laughs> oh, you really are, I have teenagers. We're going to talk about the far country for just a minute. Scripture doesn't tell us just where that far country was. It doesn't. I don't know where it was, maybe it was in Egypt, that was a story, story. But it doesn't tell us, because then honestly, if God had told us where it was, we're like, well, I'm glad I'm not in Egypt. You understand what I'm saying? But I know where my own faraway country was. I know where my faraway country was. It was in my own hometown. It was my own hometown. The reason I have such a love, like I said before, for prodigals is because I was one. I, mean, I didn't share my testimony this weekend, but I'm going to share pieces, just a couple pieces of it now. Um, I was raised um, in, a, in a Christian home with parents who loved me. They had met at a very young age at Southwest Baptist University. They had met and gotten married, and they were, uh, uh, they were in the ministry and I was raised in a culture, I was just raised in a culture of young marriage. Does anybody, like, I was not taught to get married young. I was raised in the culture of young marriage. So my brother and his wife got married at 19. My mom and dad married at 19. And I just thought, man, if I want to marry by 19, I was going to be an old maid. Well, I didn't want to be an old maid. So after my freshman year in college, I went away to college, and I, I had just, I was 17, turned 18. I was a young, a young freshman. I thought, it's the summer. I'm losing time. That summer, my parents, my dad was called to pastor a church in Hawaii. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with Hawaii, Hawaii is a great military base. It's for, for the U.S. I mean, it is the U.S., but feel me. Anyway, it's got all sorts of military bases, every branch that are there. And my dad was pastoring at a church in Kailua. And Kailua is right outside of Kaneohe Bay. And Kaneohe Bay houses a marine base. There's a marine base there. And when we moved there, I was like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you just delivered. Man, I got a picking, right? I could pick. Sure enough, some cute Marine walked in my church, 19 years old, within six months I married him. Just made it. Came back, he got out of the military, he came back, we came back to uh, Missouri. He got a job, and where he got his job, he met a young girl who was just better than me, I guess. He had an affair, I walked in on him. In that situation, I, I, can, I, can re I can tell you every detail. I can tell you every detail. I often think about Paul when he was talking about Alexander, and he said, beware of Alexander, he did me much harm. I can remember every detail, and I could tell you every detail, but let me tell you about the memories that we have that Satan wants to exploit and twist and manipulate and bring hurt. Jesus goes back to that place, and he restores it, and he heals it. I can recall, every, I, I can, I, I can recall it, but now I give glory to God because God can restore it. He can restore it. But when I walked into that situation, I am telling you something in my spirit broke. It broke me. Within, I was, at that point, I was divorced by the time I was 21. We'd been married 19 months, I think 16 months, 16 months. And I decided in that moment, I am telling you, in my heart, I went into that faraway country and I thought, God, you work for some, but you don't work for me. You work for some. Have any of you guys ever thought that? You see miracles happening in other people's lives. You see the goodness of God happening in other people's lives. And you are tempted to believe by Satan himself that God works for them, but he doesn't work for you. So you step into owning your own life. I can tell you, I will give testimony until the day I die. I had Christian people who call themselves Christians in my life doing the same wicked lifestyle that I was engaging in and cheering me on. I had the culture that was telling me, you go, girl. You get your own education. You make something of yourself. It doesn't matter. You're your own person. But let me reassure you, let me just assure you to know that you are the one who wakes up with the guilt and the sin and the consequences of your own choices. They're not the ones waking up with the sin. You are. And after a while, that sin will wear on you. And I had a gift. I had a gift that I was born into. I had a gift. I was born into a, to a godly family. A godly family. And I can look around here and I know there's got to be godly parents and godly grandparents praying for your prodigals. Come on. I know you are. Because a parent, a parent may not know the details of what their kids are doing, but a parent knows their kid's doing something. I just think God gives us that. He gives it to us in order to pray for them. We have to pray for them. It's a gradual hardening of the heart. I'm going to talk about, for the end of this, what God did in my life to bring me back home. But I would be remiss not to encourage you with every breath that I have to not stop praying for your prodigal. Do not. In my last message, the Lord impressed upon me to not just encourage people to pray for their prodigal children, but to pray for your prodigal spouse. I do women's ministry. I sit with the women who sit across from me, sobbing because their husbands won't come to church. There is hope for your husband. 
There is, I go to a church where a man has been left by his wife, left the two kids. There is still hope for the wife. There is hope. Don't you ever believe, don't you ever believe, don't you ever believe in the face of what you see that there is no hope. There is always hope. There is hope for the grandmother or the mother who is so close to going into eternity that has hardened her heart against God. If there is breath in her lungs, there is hope. You pray for them. You pray for that father who is his own man. My husband is here today, and my father-in-law gave his heart to Jesus how many days before he died? In the hospital, not expected to go home. There is hope. Longtime atheist. Miracles happen. Don't you ever give up. Don't you ever give up on your prodigal. Now, like many of us have learned, here's the reality, too. Here, listen, I'm in a church, so I'm going to address a church thing. There are many of us who are walking, feeling like we've surrendered most of our life to the Lord. Like, but then there's one little piece. We're just going to keep this one little piece. That one little piece is what Jesus is asking for. That one little piece that we want to control and manipulate because we're a little bit tempted to think that God's gonna let, he's going to let us down in that. He wants all of us, every piece of us. Hard times happen everywhere. There's so many times rebellion leads us to going over to the, we think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. People leave their marriages because they think the grass is greener in that new marriage. But guess what? Troubles wait for them. People leave their jobs because they're convinced that if I just have this other job, I will find satisfaction, I will find happiness, but troubles will wait for them. Kids move out of their parents' home, going to be their own man, and guess what? Trouble waits for them. This magical, mysterious, faraway land that we envision, trouble resides there which always leads us. In faraway land, there is always opposition. Always opposition. Faraway land is not blessed by God. It's not blessed by God. There's always opposition there. Like our young boy, about that time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. It doesn't matter where you want to run in life to hide from your problems, run from God, whatever, wherever you go. You know why troubles reside there? You know why? Because you take yourself with you. Unless you begin to deal with yourself with God, no matter where you go to hide, you will find troubles reside. Our sin will always lead us, lead us to more sin. And what looks like freedom is bondage. It's bondage. which quickly leads us to our next point, and that's when we choose to harden our hearts against God and run in the opposite direction that he would have us to go, we will soon find ourselves sitting in some serious disillusionment. Disillusionment. Fifteen, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry and even the pot, that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. I think there are two things in the church that I see lead us to disillusionment with God more than anything else. One is disappointment with God, and one is discouragement with your circumstances and situations. We do. This is why, this is why pride leads us to do things that we never would have done. We become disillusioned with God because we feel like he didn't come through in a way that we think he should have. He didn't come through in a way that we prayed and begged God or believed that he could have. 
He doesn't deliver as fast as we would like, and we begin to see far away land appearing to provide the benefits that we think God is holding out from giving to us. So much of the success of your Christian life and your relationship with God will rise and fall on what your belief is about his goodness. Satan came to Eve, and he tempted her to believe that God was not good and that he was holding something out from her. Yeah, I want that thing. God must not be good, otherwise... What? That's all he's got to do with us, friends is just to believe that God is not good. Matthew 7, 11 says, So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? God was not just good in the Bible. He's good today. He's working all things out for good today. He is a giver of good gifts. He is not holding out on you when he doesn't deliver the way you really wish he would deliver. He is not. He is working all things out together for good. This weekend we talk about, this week we talk about, there are things in our life that don't feel good. That's true. Cancer doesn't feel good. The death of a child doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And I can look at scripture and I can think, how can he possibly understand how I feel? And I look to Mary, and Mary had to have thought when she saw her son up on that cross, that this could not be good. And yet you and I sit here today as a collective, in a collective agreement, that that was the best thing that ever happened so that we can have an entrance at home in eternity. I think about Paul, who was beaten and shipwrecked and bitten by a snake and stoned and beaten with rods, and I had to think at some point he thought, really, God, left for dead, this is good. And yet today... We have the New Testament that was penned so much it was penned by the Apostle Paul. We received the encouragement from what he was given comfort from God for, and I will tell you that it is good. I think about John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos, right? And he, when he was exiled, I, ha I have to think that he thought, I gave this message yesterday, this piece of message, I have to believe that he thought, this is not good. This is not good. And yet, it was the Isle of Patmos that he was given the vision of revelation. Revelation is what gives me hope that this ain't all there is. And that is good. We have to trust his goodness. We have to trust his goodness. Should we begin to entertain that God isn't good and isn't, isn't intimately involved in our lives, we will give into disillusionment that God is, that who God is, is not enough. Our prodigal son soon saw himself in bondage to his circumstances, his famine, in bondage to his lifestyle, reckless living. He was in bondage to man. He had to hire himself out. He was in bondage to his flesh. He was starving so much that he longed to eat what the pigs ate. Listen, I don't think if he knew that was on the menu when he went away to faraway land and all of his arrogance that he would have done it. But Satan doesn't tell us how it's really going to turn out. He just makes us think that it's going to be better there. I remember when I came back to Jesus, Mike and I, my husband is here. My husband is darling. He's here right now. We will be married 20 years this week by the grace of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
they're all wanting to know how blessed you are right now. <laughs> Listen, people know who you're married to, right? They know. Anyway, um, Mike and I met in a bar. It was stupid. Just stupid. But sinners do what sinners do, don't we? We go to places. We go to dark places. We think we're hiding from God. We do. God can't see me. About six months into knowing Mike, I, I, I thought, here's my answer. Mike has a job. Mike works hard. Mike would make a good provider. I think Mike is very cute. And I thought, he can rescue me. So I convinced him to marry me. I went out and I bought my own wedding ring. We got married in my parents' house. Got married on a whim, in a weekend. Just decided to get married. Because this is what we do. We try to fix our own junk before we ever go to Jesus and, tr and ask him to fix us. I didn't marry my husband because God put this great vision in front of my life that this is the man you were supposed to marry. I married him because I was looking for a savior. Mike is great, but he is a very poor savior. We make idols of everything before we go to Jesus. That's what pride does. Remember? Let's go back to pride. Jesus is the answer. So about six months after marrying Mike, six months into it, I realized I had made a very big mistake. Not because Mike is bad, but because it didn't alleviate the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the thoughts of the enemy and the weight of the sin that I had entered into. It was not cleansed. I needed to be cleansed. I needed to be forgiven. He could not do that for me. And the weight of my sin six months into it was too much for me. Now here's the thing with God. God is good. God loves his children. God came into the world to save sinners. We'll talk about that in a minute. And over and over and over again, because I had godly parents praying for me, and godly grandparents praying for me, there were people that would come along in my season of sin, keep pointing me to Jesus. Don't think because somebody's not responding to your admonition or your encouragement or your invitation that it is empty and void, that it was worthless. You keep showing up. Because in my case, I had a woman by the name of Nancy Duchek. And Nancy would keep coming alongside of me, and she was like 58 years older than me. She's still older than me. She's way older than me. She's almost dead. I love her. Anyway, it's 20 years ago. She would talk that she had something that I didn't have. She would talk and she would say that she had this relationship with God. That God would speak to her. What? That she had joy and she had purpose and she had passion. Things that I, she had peace. I just needed peace. You know, I, I didn't need to have the whole plan for my life. I just need to get under the weight of what's coming on me. And her life preached a better message than I had ever heard of any sermon from any pulpit because she had suffered unlike anybody I had ever known. She had prayed and prayed and prayed for a child. Prayed and prayed and prayed. Fifteen years. And God gave her a child. And then God took that baby home seven days later. And yet she had joy. How does that happen? God is how that happens. So six months into it, I was in our little 94th apartment complex on Highway 94, Country Club Apartments, and I opened up my Bible. 
And I'm like, God, I'm either going to kill myself or I need what Nancy has. I need that. I need that. I can't intellectualize this anymore. I can't. I can't keep going to church and trying to fix this. I can't get out of under the weight. I hate my life. I hate it. I hate my life. And I'm telling you, my prayer of repentance, my sinner's prayer, was not, dear Jesus, come into my heart. I am a desperate sinner in need of a Savior. My faith is one of desperation. It's not pretty and it is not polished. It is daily. And I opened up my Bible and I said, God, this was my prayer. I don't understand what's in this book. I don't understand. But Nancy has something I don't have. And I want that. I want that. And I have never heard the audible voice of God, never. But I know the voice of God by his spirit. I know God's spirit's voice. And the first time I heard it, I heard it as, as though it were audible. And he whispered into my soul, welcome home. And the battle for my soul was done. I will spend my life as a sinner in need of forgiveness every single day of my life. I will go out telling people about the goodness of God. That it doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter that you tried to fix your own life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because God covers all of it. Jesus covers all of it. It doesn't matter. Altered, altered is our name because it is foundational to what we believe. Jesus can transform anybody. Anybody. Amen. Come on. When I first gave my heart to Jesus 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I began to consume the word of God. There is something very supernatural that happens. I'm just telling you. I grew up in the church. I knew all the stories, but it was just intellectualized. When I gave my heart to Jesus, Jesus made the word come alive like never before. And everything that had been stored up from RAs, from GAs, from youth group camp, from overnight revivals, it came back like a flood. God's word is living and active. God's word. And this is what he gave me. This is my life verse. I thank him who has given me strength, 1 Timothy, verse 12. I thank God who has given me strength in Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord flowed over me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. I haven't memorized another version. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why. And that's so good. Because we all qualify. Like the prodigal in the story. All I could do was imagine what life was before when I was sitting in my pit. 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. So right now we have the switch in the story. We have a switch of what happens in our lives. He came to his senses. This is powerful. It's something only God can do. He couldn't let the memories of what was before his sin, what was before his pride, what was before his rebellion, he couldn't let that go. The Holy Spirit brings things to mind, doesn't he? 
make us wish for what was before. Have you ever been there? In faraway land, and the thoughts come at you with rapid fire. Had I just not given into that temptation? Had I just not made that decision? If I had just seen more clearly the path that this would lead me on, I would not have done it. We've all been there. We've all been there. We've all been there. All of us have some regrets. And that's why we have Jesus. And that's why this story is so powerful. Because while this story is just a parable in the Bible that Jesus told, it is based on the truth that with God, there is always an opportunity for a different ending. Always. There's a woman that we brought to speak yesterday, um, and she said, whenever I go into the prison, like I said, we just did an an altered conference at the Chillicothe Women's Prison, and whenever I bring in speakers there, I want to bring in speakers that the inmates can look at, and they can think, if she made it, I can make it. As a former inmate, she goes and she does women's ministry all around the U.S. with her husband. She came up and she encouraged us. And and, and I asked everybody when she sat down, she's got this wonky hair and bedazzled all over her. She is fantastic. I just love her. I said, let me ask the audience, how old do you think she is? Like, I don't know. The woman is 80 years old. 80 years old and still going into prisons and still, still telling the captives that Jesus can set them free. You can still have a different ending than whatever season you find yourself in. Your children, your spouses, your, they can still have a different ending than what you can see with your eyes. We pray. We pray. With prodigals, the next two verses show us that we can always grab onto hope. Grab onto real hope. Verse 18 says, I will go home to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. I'm going to stop here for just a moment and I'm going to say there are so many denominations and so many churches and so many well-meaning pastors that just beat on you and beat on you and beat on you that you are not worthy. And we just walk around with our head bowed. I am not worthy. I am not worthy. I am not worthy. Let me tell you something. Jesus died for you to make you holy. He gave you your worthiness. You were made in his image before he ever saved you. Don't you hang your head. You walk in the authority that I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. I have the inheritance waiting for me. I have gifts I have talents, I have abilities, I have a calling on my life, and I'm going to flush that out. No more hanging your head. You know who your dad is. Come on. Bending our hearts toward heaven takes humility. And humility is hard to come by because we're humans. But the Bible says to humble yourself before God. And what I would tell you is that you better humble yourself before God because when God do it, it hurts. It hurts. We humble ourselves. Even with altered, we have a thing, a fundamental belief that we lift God high and we stay low. I don't care if you ever follow altered. I don't care. I want you to follow Jesus. I don't care. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. The best part is that when we do, we can assure, we can be assured that agape love, A, will meet us. We don't have to be afraid of coming back and being threatened that we won't be accepted or that he's just going to unleash all this wrath that he's been storing up for us. That's not the way the story goes. That's not what, listen, the enemy wants to keep you afraid of what God might say to you when you return to him. You want to know what God's going to say to you? Read the scripture. 
So he returned to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him, and he kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Agape love, agape love met him, this divine love attributed to God the Father, a love that washes over us, a love that picks us up, a love that restores us, a love that you cannot find from another person. Stop trying to find God's love in man. Find it in God. He will meet you there. He will meet you there. A love that sees us while we are still far off. My father is my favorite pastor. He is my favorite pastor. He is filled with grace and he is filled with wisdom. And I love him. My second favorite pastor is Charles Spurgeon. He once preached about the prodigal son. When you give God an inch, he will give you a mile. If you come a little way to him, when you are still yet a far way off, he will run to meet you. I do not know that the prodigal saw his father, but that wasn't important because the father saw him. The eyes of mercy are keener than the eyes of repentance. He sees a sinner way before the sinner sees him. I do not suppose he writes that the prodigal traveled very far, but I imagine as he walked, he walked very slowly with a heavy heart and downcast eyes, with many a sob and many a sigh, and he was resolved to come, yet he was still half afraid. That's here tonight, that's here. That's here, right now, that's here, that's here. You're resolved to come, but you're still a little bit afraid. But we read that his father ran to him. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God runs where we can scarcely limp, and if we are limping toward him, he will run toward us. This is what we are guaranteed. He goes on to write that his father saw his son. There is a great deal in that word saw. He saw who he was. He saw where he had come from. He saw the filth on his hands and his feet, and he saw his rags, and he saw his repentant look, and he saw what he had been, and he saw what he was, and he saw what he soon would be. His father saw him because God has a way of seeing men and women that you and I cannot understand. He looks right through us at a glance as if we were made of glass, and he sees all of our past and all of our present and all of our future, and he runs to us. It doesn't matter how far away we run, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, God always sees you. He sees you. He sees you when you cannot get out of bed because depression is running rampant. He sees you when somebody didn't call you to let you know they're on their way home and you are sitting up into the hours of the night and you're wondering when they're going to get there. He sees you. He sees you as you're waiting for your husband to come home at night. He sees you. He sees you as you're sitting in the doctor's office getting that diagnosis. He sees you. He's never lost sight of you. Even though you may think, God, I don't think you see me. And I know I don't see you. God sees us. And the reason that's so good is because the prodigal, his life was restored because God saw him. 
and our life can be restored quick. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Um, I'll kill the calf. We've been fattening. We'll celebrate the feast. For the son of mine was dead, and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. I want to com- conclude this message with some final thoughts that Spurgeon had regarding the prodigal child because I, ta- I, think, I think this taps into our fear of what happens when we return to God and yet we are terrified that when we go home we're going to repeat the same sin and nothing took place. Let me tell you, let me tell you, the women that came and filled this area, I'm, I am praying, I know, I know the enemy. Do not be unaware of the enemy's schemes, that he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And when people come forward and people make decisions in their heart, they leave and they are tempted to believe that that didn't really matter. That what took place and that seed planted and that sand that was taken, it didn't really matter. Because Satan is trying to steal that seed. He's trying to steal that good word. It's time to fight back and say, mm, uh-uh, I'm watering it. I'm going to keep believing it. I'm going to keep walking in it. Jesus says, I'm forgiven. I'm going to walk in my forgiveness. Things are going to change in my house because I'm believing that God is still in the transforming business. So what Spurgeon said. He invites us into that conversation, and he imagines this conversation this boy might have said to himself. He's like, my future, my future, my future. Like, what if I ever go astray again? Then he knows that if he were to ever go astray again, your God is good, and he will come out, and he will meet you again with a holy kiss, and put the robe on again, and put the ring on again, and put the sandals on again, and throw a party again, because that is God. That's God. Church, God does more for us than more for us than what we know when we return to Him. Spurgeon writes, He not only surrounds us with signs of His love, but He says concerning us, "They shall be My people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they will fear Me forever, for the good of them and for the good of their children after them." That is a promise that I am claiming. That as I follow God, I am doing it not only for the good that God will bring about in my life, that he's going to bring out good in my children's life. It doesn't matter what you see. Listen. It doesn't matter what you see with your eyes in the here and now. It doesn't. We are a people called to live by faith. When God says to pray, you pray. When God says to take courage, you take courage. When God says to take heart, you take heart. When God says you have peace, you walk in that peace. We can choose to live by God's way and God's word, or we can choose to live by emotions and thoughts that assail us. It is time for us to believe that God is still in the business of bringing our prodigals home. Come on, right now. This is, I'm going to have the worship team come up. I'm not even going to go back to my notes. I'm going to take my worship team. Listen to me. There are some of you here that have an area in your life that is an area that you have not completely surrendered to God. Because you're a little bit afraid, right, that God isn't going to be good. What I will tell you is that God is good. God is good, and you can trust him with that. There's other people here, listen, I just prepared the message that God gives me, that has a prodigal that they have been praying for for an extended period of time, and you got no hope left. Because what you've seen, what you've seen with your eyes, has, has, would lead you to believe that God has completely left your kid. There was no shot. They have completely walked away from God. You don't understand why. And you feel a little condemnation from the enemy letting you know that you're not such a good parent. Stop in the name of Jesus. Stop that. Your child who is walking in prodigalness, let me be very clear, that is not your fault. That is not your fault. All of us stand before God on our own terms. We all stand before God on our own feet. 
God, God does not have any grandchildren. He only has children. God is working on your behalf. God is answering your prayers in ways that you cannot see. But we have to draw a line in the sand, and we've got to say, I'm completely in for the good of us and for the good of our children. And we've got to take a stand, and we've got to draw a line, and we've got to say, Satan, no more. No more. I've given up. I can admit I gave up on my kids, man. No more. You come to the altar today. You, you Listen, pride in a church will keep you seated. And you know as well as I do, you don't have to come to the front, but I'm asking you to come to the front because I want to see that when you physically, when you take your body and you allow it to physically match the humility and the call and the transformation that's happening in your heart, God does something. Because we're agreeing that pride will not keep us in bondage. Rebellion will not keep us in bondage. We are coming back from faraway lands. And we are praying for our kids. Can I just tell you, if you don't have kids to pray for, pray for mine. And they got a lot. <laughs> but Satan is not going to quit. He's going to keep coming at them. Come on. Let's pray. Church, you've heard a good word, so let's stand. And if God is speaking to you, he's laid someone on your heart. Listen, working with young adults, students, I can't tell you the number of conversations that I've had with parents and grandparents. Man, so many grandparents who have a child or a grandchild that's, in, that's gone astray, that's ran off to this faraway land. And I know it hurts, but God calls us to pray. And you can pray right there where you're at, and that's okay. But if God is speaking to you to come and to lay their name down on this altar with your all your heart, you're invited to come. This morning, maybe you are the prodigal. There is something in your life where you've ran away from God. I want you to know we're inviting you to return. I'm going to be up here in this front, front row. Just come grab me. I'd love to talk with you. Whatever God is speaking on your heart, would you obey him? And if that looks like coming and getting on your knees, obey him. We're going to sing this song together. You follow the Spirit's guidance.